Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories podcast. I'm here today with a very special guest, Anirudh Pai. Anirudh is the co-founder of Conservative Curious Podcast and the creator of the Dreams of Electric Sheep newsletter. Anirudh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Glad to be here. So Anirudh, we're going to talk about a bunch of different things today from charter cities to biotech to geopolitics. Sure. When you think about what is sort of the thread that you've kept on pulling or that ties all your interests together mm-hmm. that explains why you go down you know, certain rabbit holes, what is that? What is the question that you keep trying to tr- trying to answer? Sure. I think that's an interesting question fundamentally, because I think despite what a lot of people say, I'm a big believer in the idea that, you know, if we're lucky, we get one original idea in our lifetime and only a very lucky few, I think, ever get two. And for me, that original idea, I think, is that we don't really live in an era where people really crave scientific advancement. I think people make the case that we do. And, you know, they'll, I mean, this is a stagnation thesis whereby, you know, they'll point to one area, right? They'll point to a particular to disprove a general point, which doesn't really work out. I mean, this is not theoretical mathematics, right? You know, this is life. And um, people who say mathematics is complicated, as the famous quote goes, doesn't know, they don't know how life actually turns out because it's way more complicated. And so the thread for me was always going into areas where you had these amazing groups of people, you know, what people now call a senius, and figuring out what makes them tick. And I think because especially we're definitely influenced by the people we're with, but I think everyone has something inside of them that they always wanted to pursue. For me, that was actually neither biotech or charter cities. My fundamental interest was always in aerospace, in space colonization, but I think timing matters a lot. I think timing is very fundamental. And I think in order to do that stuff, you know, we both need medical advancement and we fundamentally need advancement in governance in cities. Yeah. Let's get into charter cities a little bit. Mm -hmm. Why don't we talk about, just give an overview of where is the space today? What what progress is being made? What what still needs to happen? Where are we right now? Yeah, that's that's a pretty strong question. So there's a lot of hype now in the space that wasn't there a few years ago. When I talk to people in the space, the one thing that they say is that deal flow has incredibly increased to the point where it would have been unrecognizable five years ago to even have people talking about this. You can imagine how insane you would sound, right? Especially in the Western world when you talk about, oh, uh, San Francisco, but newer, right? That would just blow people's minds and people would think you're crazy. But the quality of people I've been meeting in the space who've you know, made amazing stuff in the tech scene, I, I doubt I can name a lot of them because they're super early stage and they probably value their privacy. But you know, to give you an example, some of the brightest people in the London tech scene and Europe and Africa and even parts of America who see that this is a very pertinent issue. So I think many of us grew up with kind of ideas that our physical world wouldn't look the same that it did 50 years ago, right? Our roads wouldn't basically be the same roads as it had in Roman times. Our buildings wouldn't, you know, the best buildings that we had today shouldn't look like the ones that were made in London in the era of romanticism, right? All those things should be changed and should be reconfigured. And it's actually harks back to this idea of, the. I'm not sure if you're aware of the long 19th century, but basically centuries don't just change because of the year 1900 right? It takes a definitive event. And for a lot of people, they thought that was 2001. For me, I actually 
was alive during 2001, but not to the point where it you know drastically changed my mindset as it did for many of my peers. Whereas coronavirus has changed everything, right? And I think people have in this moment fundamentally reshifted their priorities. And um, yeah, Marx had that one line in the Communist Manifesto, which is that everything that is holy is now profane. Uh, however, I actually take the inverse view, which is that everything that was profane, like city building, is now holy. Hmm. And so what is the biggest bottleneck to, like, what, what is going to be the iPhone moment for charter cities or where, where people are going to sure. sort of, yeah, what do you think about that? So I think the iPhone moment is, as Mark Andreessen says, every consumption part of the iPhone was actually made 50, if not like, like con- conceived at least 50 years before. So whether that's the touchscreen, fiber optics, I mean, we could see fiber optics, the start of it actually start in the 19th century. You know, obviously we needed microchips and inventions of those kind, but I mean, that wasn't anywhere near 2007, right? We had that in the sixties and, you know, the innovation started there, but it took a genius to kind of reconstitute these pieces from first principles. And that requires this definite understanding of human nature. You kind of have to be arrogant enough and, determined enough to know that, you know, I know exactly what it is that people want. And that's the same with any statecraft project. I think they all tap into some deep need with human nature. I mean, people will probably cancel me over this, but like Cecil Rhodes, I mean, when he went to South Africa, like the man had no idea what he was doing. But when people talked about him, they could just say that his irreverent self-belief made them know that everything would be okay. And so as I see the iPhone memo with charter cities, I think the one thing that many people have no clue about right now is the extent to everyone's depression from not being in a community. And when you talk about the suicide ep- epidemic that's occurring to like older single white males in America that goes unnoticed, no one talks about that. But the generations of divorce, of easy divorce, of drug use, of alcohol abuse, like these things that we now consider okay in modern society yeah. were just unconceivable to people generations ago. That was exactly the point of religion, right? To not go into our deepest and darkest secrets, but uh, we opened the we opened that Pandora's box. That's already gone, right? People already know what post um, modernity is like. However, there is among Gen Z like a seed of hope that you know all is not lost, and you can even see that with communities that form online, right? So you can kind of think about online communities as just faster iteration of what happens in the physical world. Obviously, that's not true for stuff deeply in the world of atoms, right? Like medical regulation or space exploration, right? Things that actually require way more than just putting together a Slack group and a lot more complex coordination there. But when you think about governance and community, like that does kind of the job there, right? I mean, people want to feel something. They don't want to feel nothing. And I think so the iPhone moment of cities is actually that and creating small communities first around a shared set of beliefs that really combine the community in a time when the low-hanging fruit and the competitor is this atheism that we put all over America of, you know, a different note is actually that we're actually now seeing an exponential rise in smart, intelligent women becoming nuns and joining the church. And not many people know that. Say, say more about that. Or, or, yeah, so... Extrapolate from that. A lot of theologians, I guess a bit more about me is, so I went to England to do my undergrad, you know, which is... Uh, obviously like has that Western atheism, but a lot of people in Cambridge and Oxford, for example, have, you know, this like theological background or they, I guess the school they went to had that underpinning. And the one thing that you realized was that so many people like amazing, right? So in England, you have like first class, the tripos, it's like the best of the best. 
uh, of which like, you know, Singaporean leaders would come from, you know, like amazing minds, right? So senior wranglers is what they call the best person in the Cambridge mathematics repos. But people like that going to join the church. And you wonder, wait, why are they quitting the rat race? But that's not just a phenomenon of England. That's actually a phenomenon of American Ivy Leagues too. So I am reminded of the third hottest field that is ramping up in the Ivy League in America now is the nonprofit sector. And you can kind of think of it as that people just hate atheism. They want to believe in something. They want to believe in social impact, these venture funds that actually now Chelsea Clinton is making a venture fund, right, around social impact. So what does that tell you? That neoliberalism has just entered everything. And that's a form of belief. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad belief, but at the same time, a lot of people have seen, have climbed the mountain and they find out there's nothing there. And for those people, those people who don't really have worldly material ambition, like they're just going back to how life always was about people and about community. Yeah. And what do you think that looks like in a postmodern way that, because most people aren't going to sign up for nuns, not just because they're just not going to sign up for pre-modern religion. Um, if you dispute that, but what is sort of the postmodern solution to that? So it's tough to say exactly what it'll look like, but every time there's a diaspora, it always has this religious feel to it. So when we think about, so I do, I'm a researcher for Bonomos, which invests in charter cities. And the thing that you realize is that the most successful nation of all time, however you define that, it could be politically, economy, uh, in a Machiavellian sense with power. If you talk about America as that place, it was actually started by the shared ontology of a cult. Everyone hated the Puritans in Europe. They couldn't stand them. They thought they were like overbearing and just terrible to be around, right? Like not like that guy you go to drink, you drink, you get drinks with who like can't crack a joke. And so they all left and did their own thing, but they had to pioneer this from the ground up. And in a postmodern sense, what I kind of think is that the next exit that's already occurring, you know, people are leaving the coastal cities to go to these less expansive states and hordes. I think a lot of them have their own shared ideas around why they exited. And so for some people, I've seen like crypto communities pop up in America, right? And they have their belief there of like, to them, so many facets of American culture, whether it's like the bailing out of corporate culture, all these things have led them to create this their own viewpoint of this. Again, it's not pre-modern, but it's this world where, you know, like I guess techno-communism is a way to describe it, right? That the spoils of what we do can be just shared among all of us. And yeah, we can create value that is facilitated in a network. And so we all benefit. And those things, I mean the last shift of that scale that you can arguably say is the shift from paganism to monotheism, right? Like we haven't really seen, and in that time it was a crazy time because like Augustus was taking over the world. Jesus is like, I'm son of God. Augustus is like, no, I'm the son of God, right? Because he sees their son. But now we're kind of getting back to that same shift once again, where like I'm reminded of Anthony Lewandowski who made his own religion. (laughs) Like yeah. he had his movement, right? But but people don't know about that. But to get those people to galvanize, just like Jobs was a god, like Lewandowski was a god, just to fewer people. Yeah. And so you're are you suggesting we might see more more of that type of thing? I think so. I think in every community, in every startup, even there's a benevolent dictator, right? But people just hate to like when when they criticize Singapore for Lee Kuan Yew, they'll turn around and say Elon Musk is a god. Yeah. <laughs> without realizing the hypocrisy there right yeah we briefly touched on stagnation earlier 
what do you, what do you think people misunderstand or or not fully appreciate around sort of the stagnation thesis in terms of what is happening or why it's happening or, or are you pretty you know that aligned with sort of Tyler Cowen or Patrick Carlson or Michael Nielsen's ideas on it? Sure, I think oh, that's such a broad question. There's so many angles there. So certainly there is a stagnation in doing more with less in the three main areas that we think of as the American dream. Whether that constitutes global stagnation is a different question, but for what we promised Americans and for the tax that they pay, the benefits that they've received, you can definitely say has been a bit underhanded. And my awakening kind of around this is, you know, Steve Bannon was definitely hated for saying that a lot of America has been sold off bits and pieces to the globalist class. And they've kind of used that power that they had to just ship everything over to China, of which like Biden was a notorious supporter, right? And now that's coming to pay the price of our manufacturing. It's an incline. Our self-reliance is an incline. I think overall optimism of that is just in decline because like when you think about your viewpoint of yourself and your viewpoint of your country, when you kind of find out that it misses the mark, you know, that takes a huge hit. So I think there's definitely a cultural stagnation in what we can do. But in these little areas, I I really like um, Josh Wolf's take on this, which is that there's a lot happening. And so I'm thinking about this company, Cobalt Metals, that's trying to build Google Master underneath the earth. And to me, that's something that's amazing, right? Because like so many cities, for example, were started off that idea of resource extraction. You can think of early San Francisco and that paradigm, um, South Africa, like in the scramble for Africa period that so many people don't know enough about in 1873, I think there were no African countries that were essentially colonized by the end of 1913, all but three were, and most of them were around resource extraction, but it was done in terrible ways, right? You can think of King Leopold and the hands that so many people remember, even to this day, it just has destroyed the cultural psyche of, uh, of generations. But this is what technology can really do. It can leverage all of, all of this open source software that we made, and it can leverage all the learnings that we have. Whether or not it's entirely moral is a different question, I think. But currently, like the process that they use to mine stuff in, in Africa, sending these backyard geologists, the young kids to go into mines. And that continues the cycle of what they call the Dutch disease, of when other countries come to steal resources, it ruins the GDP of that country and uh, the output of that country for a long time. However, with this, right, it's it's like non-invasive medical procedures. You don't have to go deep into somebody. You can kind of just, you know, do all this stuff without leaving a trace. And to me, that stuff kind of belies a sense of optimism that I think if people knew, they wouldn't really think that in there's a huge, there's as much of a stagnation that they think. Yeah. How let me sort of square the circle a little bit. Like if you talk to economists, they will basically, you know, always say that tariffs are bad ideas or that, Anything mm-hmm. other than free trade is a bad idea, even if the other country sure. isn't practicing free trade. And then, you know, you hear Steve Bannon or Peter Zeyan or other people have compelling Teal. cases. Yeah. You know, Teal, how it's affected sort of employment or, you know, other, and, and putting aside sort of even foreign policy stuff, just economically, how it's, it's been negative. How, how do you sort of square this? Like, are all economists wrong? Or like, and it's sure. So certainly they're not all wrong and you can't say immediately this this is why economics is a dismal science because any prediction that you make can basically be refuted with context like unlike physics right you know we kind of know that we know the force of gravity a certain distance we can calculate like noon said can calculate the motion of these celestial bodies but i can't calculate but i can't predict the madness of men and in that same way like economics is is fundamentally the same there but when we kind of try to say that they're all wrong so 
I take the viewpoint that there are a lot of these negative externalities that are not priced in. So free trade is fundamentally takes, I think, this classical view of economics, which is like quantities and prices. And if you ship more, you're better off, right? That's what they call proto-optimal, where when you deviate, no one, uh, no one is worse off. So they pretend that it's proto-optimal, but the negative externalities, to give you a few, the, CB, uh, the FBI processes over uh, 20% of IP theft, 25% of IP theft in the Bay Area of all those cases. And when you think about that, the level to which our technology companies have been complacent about these great powers kind of entering the tech scene and stealing this data for their own use, right? And to me, one topic I've written about pretty extensively on my newsletter is what's happening with the Uyghurs in China. And when you make the case that, oh, all trade is good, and you never ask for what are you using it for, it's basically like, you know, 1930s Germany, right? I mean, Hollywood was completely complacent with everything that was happening in Germany, and much less to say about the financiers in New York who were shipping around gold for the Nazis. And so if that's in the world of atoms, right, if you think about that and helping the Nazis in the world of atoms, we're now helping China in the world of bits in the same way. Yeah. You, you have a quote in one of your newsletters that P- Peter Thiel says every bubble is a sort of uh, commentary on, on globalization. Can you talk, uh, unpack that? Sure. So in his piece, The Optimistic Thought Experiment, I think that's probably one of the best posts of all time, I think, by anyone, actually. You know, that's one of the best parts of the internet, just when you go down the blog rabbit hole, right? Um, so in the last quarter century, or you could probably say 35 years now, because he wrote that piece in circa 2009, in the last 35 years, there have basically been more booms and busts, uh, bubbles and crashes than all of history combined. And so when you unpack that, what you kind of see is that there's this highly volatile process that's occurring now where modernity is kind of at a crossroads, I think, where like, as Eric Weinstein likes to say, you know, we had that great nap in the 50s, and then we kind of just pretended it never happened. Everyone collectively forgot that we opened Pandora's box, that we were Prometheus, and we had this like fire, which was nuclear nuclear weaponry, right? And when you kind of think about that, all of these booms and busts are leading to one point, and it's either if we don't fix our shit, which kind of comes with charter cities or governance or understanding power to, to a larger extent, it's, it's the idea that, you know, one of these busts doesn't really end up so well for the world, and we all go bust, and that is the final bubble. So when you talk about there, all these bubbles are just, you can think of inside a larger mathematical function, and either, and either we go up, right, and we get past the great filter, or in reality, that is our great filter, that we were too dumb enough to kind of see that, where is all of this going? Is it just higher inequality? Is it higher depression for people? Is it another revolt? And the key question that I think people don't talk about enough is like, we want revolutionary change, as people say, without revolution. And because another revolution, what would a reign of terror in America look like, right? To me, it would, I think the rides don't even cut it. I think people have not priced in Armageddon at all, even though it's way closer than they imagine. Yeah. Let's transition into bi- biotech uh, a little bit. When you talk about sort of what, what is the state of the industry? What, what have we done? What, what have we not done yet? Or misconceptions people have around? Why don't you just unpack? Sure. I think fundamentally a lot of my interest in biotech is around aging. And so Periteos, where I currently work, is building software around clinical data management that people have no idea where their data is used or how it's been tampered or even whether or not it's been tampered, which happened in Novartis last year with uh, uh, spinal muscular atrophy. And 
a woman by herself just manipulated the data, costing the company hundreds of millions of dollars. And that stuff happens way more often than you think. And to me, a lot of my interest kind of came about where I have this deep fascination with science. I didn't actually believe in doing science at school because I could see that it became a lot more about this woke culture than science itself. And you were playing a lot of this internal politics with physics, even that no one would have ever imagined, right? That you would be having to discuss these social issues when trying to discuss gravity's constant. And in biotech, I think the interesting part there is that we're at the cusp, as my friend uh, Jim O'Neill, who runs the SENS Foundation, likes to talk about, we're at the cusp of a place where everyone is realizing that this is a solvable issue. So now they have this uh, definite optimism in the industry that wasn't there, you know, even in the era of Genentech, that wasn't enough to save most biotech firms. And most of them went bust. And I think for young people, so I think this is actually where it's more important because a lot of it comes down to human capital. I think the reason we haven't been able to solve all these major problems is not because we don't have so many smart people. It's fundamentally because we have all these smart people trying to dig into the center of the earth with a spoon instead of using like, you know, the boring company. And the way I kind of see that is that now we have all these young people who are like, okay, before we even, you know, make another health tech company, probably like, you know, like another software and medicine company that doesn't really pan out because they don't know the internal challenges. I think what we'll actually see there is that there's still a lot of R&D happening in the United States, but this actual development might actually occur outside the United States and then be brought back in, right? So there are designer baby companies that are forming. Imagine that happening in California, right? <laughs> like it would just be unbelievable to even consider much less do. Whereas if you don't care about your relationship with the United States, you can get a lot of this medical advancement done and they definitely won't like it, but that doesn't mean no one's going to do it. Right. That science is still going on. It's just who does it first. Yeah. You, you, you've written about how, or I mean, biology and others have also talked about how sort of what 2008 was for mm-hmm. crypto, perhaps the, the virus will be for, for biotech. Why don't you talk a bit about sure. the FDA about unpack that. Is that actually going to happen? The, the, state, you know, the state of the FDA today, are we going to see material changes? You know, that intersects with charters in interesting ways. Why don't you unpack that a bit? Yeah, that's, uh, again, there's a lot there, but what I would kind of say is that, so it's much easier to get around the banking system. And I think that's the nuance that people lack, which is that at that point, money and code to a degree are both just isomorphic forms of free speech. That's always, that's always been the case. If you want to go and build the future, code it, Right if you want to go and control how people talk about the future, give them money to spend it. And with biotech, that hasn't really been the case because like in our lifetime, I don't know about you, but like what amazing discovery in biotech has changed your life in the last like 15 to 20 years. I doubt people can name one, right? Like the average person on the street. And there have been many in the case of like, you know, end of life research, aging, all those things that David Sinclair and a lot of people online have been speaking about. And that's been working, but For the average person, they have no idea. So will it be like 2008? I think there will be a lot more money in the space. I think there will be a lot more supply of people building companies, which might pan out, but not even that. I'm actually interested in what will people try that they haven't considered before because they just didn't believe it was possible or that, as Patrick Collison likes to say, I always thought there was somebody standing behind the curtain until I realized there was nobody. And you thought that people were working on it, right? And that's what Aubrey de Grey said about aging. He was like, oh, I'm sure just like Elon thought about Mars, that NASA was working on a Mars mission. Like, oh, of course people are spending money on aging. Nobody was. So I think, I think the FDA 
we'll definitely see some changes, not maybe because of our bureaucracy, but because just the competition technology will almost force them to, whether it's instituting right to try in 50 states, even reconsidering the drug process that a few of my friends are working on. They're trying to make an open source lab. And my view and vision for biotech was always that it would mirror like a Numerai, the crypto hedge fund, which actually uses discrete forms of data to then make accurate predictions so that like, why do we have a thousand hedge funds, right? Like that's just such a waste of human capital when it's quite clear that if we had a thousand of those people, the best minds in tech, even at Two Sigma, what have you, and they were focusing on these existential threats. My friend Vinay Gupta made this institute called Collapsonomics, which is about the black elephant. So everyone knows Telep's Black Swan, but the black elephant is this idea of this huge, monstrous problem that's staring us in the face, but everyone just chooses not to see it. And we need people working on Collapsonomics and not pairs trading. And so that's my view for biotech, I think, where we have this one almost Asimovian machine that is like figuring the stuff out. And whether it can be done or not, I think I'm sure I'll get lambasted for saying that that's even possible. But, you know, I think before you proceed, you should have a vision. And I think that's super important and what's lacking in the biotech space. Like, where do we want to go? Like, what is our mission here? Yeah. And so what, what do you think? Not maybe not to ask back one moment again, but like, what, what do you think is going to uh, make a material difference? Like, if in five, ten years, like we're really on track in, in biotech, the, the, the winners over, etc. Like, what, what is likely to emerge? One thing that I think a lot of people haven't talked about enough is the prevalence of these digital sensors that they're going to take place in all of our lives. So, like to me, Apple is not even a services company anymore. It's going to be a health company in 10 years. And I think that's something that people aren't talking about. Like there's only a few trillion dollar markets left for Fang to go into. And when I think about that, what I kind of think about as well is that, you know, there have been so many areas of health that have been written off because they're impossible to quantify. So one of them would be stress. And, you know, you can kind of see that with uh, Keith Raboy talking about like why stress is good. And that's something that, you know, such a would have been 10 years ago, the most contrarian thing, thing to say. Whereas now it's common because there's a book about it and I'm sure the guy does podcasts himself. And to me, I think that prevalence of like understanding all this stuff at such a granular level will make massive improvements. The other thing in biotech as well is like gene therapy itself, which, you know, hasn't really been tried as much in the past. It's like relatively new, but every new modality of finding cures and ways in going about creating drugs have always made new amazing companies possible so that's the other thing i'm super excited for like where does this go and how do we use what we have currently so that we can accelerate its growth across like all of humankind i think yeah you you also mentioned how you think the virus makes it you know much more believers in crypto how how do you think that plays out because i haven't seen it yet oh man this is my favorite topic so One way you can kind of treat the entire crypto movement is that it's actually the fastest growing antithesis to this like cultural apathy that we have right now. And the reason why I say that is that like when we look at like what Eschamathapali Apatia said, right, we gave people a $1,200 stimulus check and, and the corporations, we gave them hundreds, if not thousands of times more than that. So what does that tell people? It tells people that if you're not part of the Davos class, you might as well go screw yourself, right? 
And the difference there is that in the crypto movement, at least, all of this shows is that you either own your own methods of production or like you're not really, no one will ever think about you, right? And that is even better when, let's say you don't want to, I mean, I'm super optimistic about America. You know, I wake up every day, I'm happy to be American. It's not that. But I know a lot of people who don't share that same optimism. And for them, just the feasibility of living in this crypto world with decentralized finance, escaping this regulation that they kind of see as inopportune and really making themselves a sovereign individual, right? As um, Reese Mogg wrote so many years ago, I think is the first step in really building these cities, right? When you're thinking about governance from the ground up, it's really crypto that has been pioneering a lot of this stuff. Like how do you solve the Byzantine generals problem, the double spend problem, like all these things that we shouldn't have been recreating from scratch in every society, but we were. And now someone has just formalized it. So I'm super bullish on that, I think. I, I, I totally see the cultural connection. Is there sort of a, a wedge in terms of like practical usage that you think, like what's what's the iPhone one for crypto? To just keep asking. This. Okay, yeah, sure. No, I mean, these are all good questions. So I really think we, for example, live in a world of, so one thing that I think certainly is way more true than people realize is that we live in a world of deflation, not inflation. So you can kind of think about that as we're going to max out at about 12 billion people in the world. Like as people get more educated in Africa or whatnot, they're going to stop having kids. And so when you do that, what is the hope for the government? Well, they're just going to have to keep pumping money to keep pensioners happy. And that was one of the reasons I was pretty against the EU and what it's been doing because growth in the EU has basically stopped if you talk to these macro hedge fund guys, some of which are my friends, like growth in the EU has stopped since like 2015. It's all been QE. So crypto and creating value. I think there's about three ways that you can go to have yield in the future. The first is your own business. The second is crypto. And the third is emerging markets. So when you talk about quantifying that, like the stuff that's happening in crypto and tokenizing production, finance, all these things, I mean, you're definitely taking on risk. I don't, well, I would never tell anyone to presume this is risk-free, there's always risk. But if the equivalent is negative interest rates, what are you going to do, right? When you, talk, when you talk about the iPhone moment for crypto, when you see rich old people and they're trying to decide where to put their money, imagine when they see negative interest rates yeah. as their pensions collapse, right? Because that's coming in America, that's coming in Europe, in Australia, there's going to be a massive pension collapse where like, they, all these people become liabilities and they're looking for yield. But when there's no yield, what are they going to do? Yeah, makes sense. Talk about the demographics and how that sure. uh, how that affects everything. Yeah, so McLuhan obviously has a famous quote, the medium is the message. For me, I actually think population is the message. And it's population that's the biggest demographic, the biggest engine of growth, of technology, of progress. Because more people, more young people means like there's you know going to be destined to have a massive change. So one mental model you can kind of think is like the great divergence that happened in the UK in about 1820. That's when England in the Western world was noted to have sped past Mughal India, uh, chosen Korea, Qing China. And a lot of that was you had this nascent population that, you know, had a strong GDP per capita and they were coming into this industrializing economy. So that's the engine of growth at that point. And as Anton Howe like to say, the historian of innovation, that you know, if you wanted to innovate at that time, you would go to France. But if you wanted to tinker and you wanted to mess around and you wanted to build stuff, you would go to England. And 
I kind of think of that phrase in the sense of America, where if you want to tinker and you know develop the developed world in whatever way, you go to America. However, if you want to innovate, you might have to go to Africa, and you might have to go to these other areas where you know it's the Wild West, or in that case, the Wild East, right? Speaking of sort of East West, talk about how tech interplays with geopolitics and how it influences mm-hmm. it. So, I actually think, in comparison to most people, that technology isn't as big of a driver in these great power systems as people thought. Like, I'm always reminded when I think this because obviously I'm a huge, like, definite optimist, and you know I love technology. That's always been love to read about it, love to work with it, right? But when we kind of think about like what power does it have on an international scale? Well, was technology enough to change the governance structure of San Francisco? Like, was it enough to help bring America out of coronavirus? I mean, in both of those cases, that would have really helped, right? Like our technological prowess as being the best in the world would have presumably given more people masks because of the internet, would have convinced people that we actually need a vaccine, even though most there's been a huge upsurge in people thinking that Bill Gates caused the virus and that, you know, anti-vaxxing anti, anti-vaxxing is a new move and we're all in the deep state so those are two knock-on effects of technology that people haven't predicted however i think going forward you're going to kind of see that as people want to compete in these different areas and so one of the things is like people are going to compete over being a security state and we're already seeing that play out so the manufacturer that makes the facial recognition it's huawei but a few others that are making the facial recognition cameras and software for china are now being sold through most of Africa, Australia even. And it's like a race to the bottom there, right? To be to be the most Orwellian state. Because a lot of people like that. I mean, a lot of people don't have the privilege that we have here of being able to speak your mind to whatever extent that may be. It's not free speech, but it's quite close. But yeah, again, I don't think at the same time it's enough to solve these structural challenges that a country like China has. So China, you know, with the 30 years of population imbalance from the one China policy, no matter how much technology it takes, the way capitalism is about consumption and ever greater growth, it's very hard for me to think that they can use technology to keep the state alive despite all the crazy debt to growth statistics that you see, whatever you can believe, because you can't believe anything, obviously. The crazy amounts of control they have over young people, I mean, I'm not quite sure what they think their own future is. And people say that, oh, they want to go be an astronaut. But it really is a question of will the state let them, right? And it's not as if if you just want to be an astronaut in China, you can, right? You have to play the game. You have to be the son of a bureaucrat, um, all those things. And so, yeah, the geopolitics, the geopolitics question is, is something that's highly interesting. Um, but as I also like to say that it's like trying to imagine predicting the UN during World War II. It'd be almost impossible, right? If you could get that bet, you would have like, I mean, it's like, you would have bet against the League of Nations, but then imagine you would have gone long in the UN. I never would have made that bet, I think. Yeah. And so what's, what's the implication there? What's the, what's the uh, relevance? Just so that we're in that state right now, that gestation period. And uh, there's a book, obviously, everyone references, The Fourth Turning, where we're at the end of the long 20th century. And so your entire we talked about economics previously. And so your entire view of trade, for example, would have been changed by 1914. And it would have changed again in uh, 1930 with the Holly Smoot tariff, right? Because you would assume, oh, people are rational, right? They're, uh, we had the marginal revolution uh, with um, you know calculus and economics. Everyone is rational. And then the Holly Smoot tariff just knocks you out of the park because it hits you with a fastball that you didn't even believe would happen. And 
I think that would be something like the UN where like, I don't think anyone would have imagined that there would be state capacity enough to actually have that organizing body. And I think we will see a change in that in this period. So in this case, it might actually be like, okay, America's leaving the WHO. Like what else do we leave? Right. Yeah. Or what else do we stop funding and who do, who do we even commit another trade war with? Right. I think those are the deeper questions about technology because we assumed complete free distribution. And to me, even when I was in high school, that was one of the reasons I wanted to travel and do my degree somewhere in a different country because I knew that wouldn't be the case. Like distribution, it doesn't come cheap historically. And the fact that we even had that for 20 years was something that is like an, an anachronism, I think. Yep. Just to stay in America for a second, you know, we just passed July, July 4th a couple few weeks ago and it was the least patriotic July 4th I'd, 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 I'd ever seen. <laughs> to say do the you, least. How do you think America rebrands internally? <laughs> oh, <laughs> what, what, what do you think a new patriot, patriotism looks That's, like? Yeah. So we should always, we should be aware of like what our target demographic is, right? I think that's one thing that we miss. And we kind of, the biggest debate, I think, among the political aisles is also, you know, oh, we should let everyone in. And then it should also be that at the same time, we should let the best minds in. And, you know, immigration is one of those things that I think people parrot without kind of understanding the full implications of what they're saying too. And I think people are knowing more about that, right? And suddenly during periods of shift like this, like I'm reminded that both Biden and Trump and most Democrats and most Republicans, if not all of them, are now against China. And that shift happened in a span of like five years. So I think the same is happening with how we view our isolationist policy. And what I mean by that is like, how much do we really need the complete free flow of people? And that's not, I mean, I'm like offspring of immigrants, right? So I'm an immigrant myself when I went to do my degree. So it's not like I have anything against that. If in fact, the opposite, probably, because I've done it and I know just to the challenge that it takes, it's incredible, like nothing else. But we kind of have to design these things in a, in a positive some way. What's actually happened, and you can't blame people for hating the game so far, because every time we've made the case that, oh, immigration is good, we should have always asked the next step, which is good for whom? Who in this case has it been good for? Like we can talk about the H-1B farms where people are being sent to America in a sense of indentured servitude. To me, that's not amazing, right? That's not the America that we want, certainly. Like we don't want to keep people against their will. And when they talk against their startup founder, they get axed and just sent back. But I think those are the things that are hidden underneath the surface. And when we talk about rebranding, I think, is that we have like, what, 40 million people out of work. We need to go back and just like in the story of Chicago and just like in the early stages of Vanderbilt, New York, we need to go and we need to make another utopia that people can circle around and really think about what are the industries that are changing in the future? What are the five things that I imagine that you know won't go away, whether it's AI, biotech, space, cities even, infrastructure, digital, digital infrastructure? How can I combine all this stuff into a place where people see that like if you want to do something amazing with your life, this is still the place to do it. Yeah. Speaking of cities, what is the why now for, for, for cities? Why, why 2020? And what is sort of the, the where now? For- sure. So I think a big part of, so two parts, why now and where now? So why now is because we can kind of see that remote work actually does work, like despite what people say, like a lot of people didn't believe that. Productivity has basically remained the same for not just anecdotally with the people I talked to, but just if you see company data, and even in some cases like Tesla, a company made in the world of atoms, they've hit more deliveries than were expected. And to a lot of people, that should kind of strike them as strange, right? Like if I'm wrong about that, what else am I wrong about? 
like something so central to American life. There's a good book in the 1950s. I think it's called The Organization Man, which is what the office and everything is based around. But it just took this idea that, you know, people are like segmented in this caste system in the office and that's it. That's what they do until they die. But now when you have remote work, it's like, what is possible, right? You can imagine a scenario where like in the communist manifesto, you're a hunter during the day and a gatherer at night. And each part of the day, you can choose a life for yourself that maybe you would be constrained by, by having, you know, this certain lifestyle. So when we think about why now, I think remote work being easy was a huge part of it. And the other thing is that I think many people have seen that they don't want to remain in a country that they're currently living in where the health capacity and state capacity is so low and is so poor. I think people, especially younger people, are definitely in the case of like wanting to risk it and go out and do something where, you know, sure, it, it could be like an angel investment where 100x when it pays off or 0x if it doesn't. But I think people would definitely take the chance when they know that where they are right now is a ticking time bomb in a lot of cases. And just that if you're not safe anywhere, why not go somewhere and start afresh? But where now? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, where now is interesting because it really depends on the host country. So a lot of people give the argument that this is basically neocolonialism. But then you can make that case for almost any scale of micro-immigration, right? I mean, you could have said the same about the Roman Empire, that a lot of the people they were entering in was, or even colonizing in that case, was a form of neocolonialism. However, that doesn't really stand because I think the world itself, despite what people do, is getting more connected. And there's just a free flow of people that hadn't existed in previous areas. So I'm reminded of like Jap- Japan opening up its borders. I think it was last year that they did that. So these countries that were like once wholeheartedly against immigration, right, are like now super open to it. And the where now is, I think, definitely defined by the certain host countries, whether they're it's Ghana or Nigeria, that want the best human capital or Honduras with Prospera, right? One of Eric's um, longstanding project that's been going super well and is like one of the farthest ahead projects, but it could be in Bhutan, you know, it could be Native American plots, like anywhere where the actual orchestrators of that land are open to change, I think is, is ripe for this. Because fundamentally it's about the will to do something, right? It's even less so about where it is. It's like fundamentally, could, you could have ports, you could have rivers, you could have all these things, but if you don't have the will to do it, you're dead in the water, fundamentally. Yeah. And um, Evo, I want to segue into other sort of technologies. You, you sure. ran a bit about AR. When you talk about where we are with that, you know, people, some people have sort of been knocking VR because you're even in a coronavirus, you know, where everyone's inside, it still hasn't yeah. made a dent. So a lot of people don't know this either, but like Apple is in, in the last stages of finalizing its um, AR technology. I think it'll be first released on the phone, but then later as glasses and contact lens, what have you. As we spend more and more time on our phone, I think our virtual self is already becoming more important than our physical self. You can ask anyone probably like yourself with a large Twitter account, right? When you have, when you have a lot of Twitter followers, your Twitter self is very much different than your physical self. And that's just a function of her behavior, right? People expect you to ask, act a certain way. Your YouTube channel has branded as like a vlogger. You have 20 million followers and then you want to pivot to like tech, right? I don't think many people would be very happy with that. And so that affects how you react. But AR is interesting in the way that we are already entering that world where it's like we can choose what we want to see. So I've spoken a bit before about like 
there's this uh, great movie by John Com- Carpenter where he's talking about the glasses of ideology. And so you put on the glasses and you can see something for what it actually is. So that poster about Burger King is actually eat 900 calories and eat away your troubles. And that's actually what it's saying. When Not that I have anything against Burger King, it's amazing, but across all these different areas. And I think we already have that innately, but AR just does that for us. So it lets us see whatever we want to see. And the good and bad about that is, I mean, the good could be that it's a ready player one. The bad could be that it's a snow crash. Totally. We started this conversation talking about space um, because that's where your sort of first interest was. But you said we needed sort of, you know, regulatory innovation and also mm-hmm. you know, uh, medical in- innovation. Where are we on on space right now? Um, and what's you know most interesting or most mis- misunderstood? Yeah, I think people are would be shocked by how fast the industry is moving. I recently wrote that piece. I think you might have read about what's happening in low Earth orbit, and I didn't know too much about the area, but when I was in school, I spent a lot of time around people who were working on like CubeSats. So, you know, sending these very miniature uh, satellites into space to get one meter by one meter pictures of Earth. And people talk about alternative data all the time, but to them, alternative data just meant like a view of a continent or like a view of a country. What are you going to get with that? I mean, the CIA, the FBI, they want granular images of like, show me that red red truck in the parking lot that has been there for five hours. That's the stuff they want, right? And that's the stuff that CubeSats would get you. So people had no idea that they were being tracked that scale and that uh, the Orwellian state was on them that much. And the other thing that I think people forget is just like the pace of launch is like nothing they've seen. I mean, when you talk about fundamentally the clear case is uh, mass to orbit and then there's mass to low earth orbit and then uh, there's like... um, mass uh like beyond the stratosphere and into space but all those are like just going it's just going up exponentially rocket lab spacex have both done amazing work there with uh falcon 9 and the electron rocket repeatedly but i'm actually way more interested in how do we build an ecosystem in space and the launch problem doesn't fascinate me as so much as the way i describe it is that it really took decades after the advent of the car for us to have big box stores and so it was really after World War II that when people started driving more, that you got to see companies like Walmart expand and then the suburb, right? And to me, that is what I'd love to see in space, that you know, self-sustaining community of pioneering people who, you know, while we can fix Earth, I know people make the claim when we go to space, we can't fix Earth. We can do all these things at the same time. We can build sea studs to clean up our oceans. We can go to space and live in communities that, you know, pioneer ways to escape our solar system. And a lot of that, though, just takes this understanding of that it is possible, and it takes a lot of the infrastructure to be able to do it. And I kind of, even more than the launch system that reusable rockets that SpaceX is doing, the Starlink project to me is the most fascinating because I uh, did this episode with Michael Gibson on our Conservative Curious podcast about finding the lost Elons. And as you're aware, I'm sure you've spent a lot of time with Daniel Gross at Pioneer. And I always wonder, that could have been me, right? That could have been me in one of those countries in the Congo and being a backyard geologist and having to go and mine for this stuff and always looking up and not wondering what was out there, right? But when you have the chance to give back, I think that's probably one of the best ways to do it, give people access to the internet. And we also spoke about this idea where, you know, if 
very rudimentary, but like you could imagine giving people progressively harder and harder, like mathematical puzzles that they solve. And then at the end of that, you know, you just drop, drop them to America. And I think stuff like that would be going back to rebranding America would be what it takes. That we're not, we're not a place where people emigrate out of New York, as has been happening, or California, but we're a place where people will literally, again, give up everything to be the next Elon Musk, as he so did when he came over. And we have to agree that, or have enough people agree that that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, but maybe at the, you bring up, you always talk about critical theory, right? Yeah. And, and your distaste for critical theory. I think to one degree, you kind of just have to say enough is enough. And if we listen to everyone, imagine what that would be like in an early stage startup. I mean, you invest in these all the time, right? If everyone had a say at the equal stage, nothing would ever get done. Right. But instead, that's what we're doing now. We're just letting everyone have an equal say, which some people have way more skin in the game than other people. What about their views, right? Yeah, yeah. One concern people have about starter cities, basically, Anne Rand's Galt Gulch, you know, turn to, uh, you know, come true in that wealthy people stop subsidizing, you know, the people who need it the most and just move out. You, you wrote a post about, you know, in a different way, Argentina and, 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 and what's happening there. When you talk about sort of the first concern more abstractly and then maybe say what you find interesting about Argentina. So the case that you're describing is that effectively in Galt's Gulch and Atlas Shrugged, the smartest and most ambitious people move to a town away from the rest of civilization that you can only get access to by plane, effectively. And that takes this very Robinson Crusoe model whereby like the book, for example, doesn't even discuss what families would be like in Galt's Gulch. It doesn't discuss much about culture and how future people actually interact with each other, even in the city, right? It, it kind of just like, you know, you rely on every man's self-interest is one line from the book. However, that's maybe not the best way to have like immortal societies, right? When you kind of think about what are you trying to build? Are you trying to build a place that has this greedy algorithm that, you know, when you appeal to every person's self-interest, what about the negative externality, right? that we kind of see right now with crises ac- across all of America. So how does a charter city prevent that? Well, the thing is that unlike our cities now that don't prevent that first and foremost, is that you can iterate in a charter city. So San Francisco and Palo Alto are both examples of charter cities that never innovated. And when you think about that, you think, oh, but San Francisco is the hub for innovation, Palo Alto too, just not at the governance level. It, it was kind of that they focused on all these toys, which were amazing, obviously changed our lives. But when you talk about the things that just underpinned all of that, the uh, the bylaws never really changed after a certain point. Whereas, like you want law that's like code, fundamentally you want you want to move past these things. And so, when we talk about Galt's Gulch, it's like an immutable object, right? It's it's um, something that never changes because in the book it's like this more you know like it'll be around forever, and they go there and then they die there and all those things. However. In these charter cities, what I imagine is like, you know, what are we going to see from like letting a thousand nations bloom? And I think that idea is pretty convincing to me simply that like, do we know, for example, what's best in the education system, right? I don't think so. I don't think we even scratch the surface there. I mean, to me, Lambda school is when people talk about Lambda school changing everything, it's like, that's the same fallacy of like Elon changing everything, right? Like they do a lot, certainly. No one can deny that. But can they change everything? I don't know. I mean, it takes a thousand different nations and a thousand different Lambda schools and Elons and Austin Allreds to change everything. And 
San Francisco definitely wouldn't allow that, right? Even even one Elon is too much for California. How would they deal with a thousand, right? But going back to your point about Argentina, so Argentina is seeing that right now with Joe Lewis, who was Joe, George Soros's friend during the Black Wednesday phenomenon in 1992. And Joe owned a football team in England, lived a very merry life. But then over the last few years, it started to buy more and more property in Patagonia. And when you see that, you kind of wonder, okay, this is a bit strange. How is a country giving up land in exchange for debt? Because for an investment that they couldn't pay off, uh, I think in nine different bankruptcies, has only compounded. And they put them more into debt, which usually happens in history, right? You make a deal with the devil, he doesn't forget. And that was definitely the case with Argentina. But the interesting part about this is that uh, Theodore Herzl wrote a book I think it was at the early part of the 20th century where he remarks about this and says that the future for Jews across the world is that the American Jew should be able to go to Argentina or Turkey, I believe, and the European Jew should go to Israel. And that's interesting to me because, you know, they basically called it. And that is essentially what Argentina has become because Argentina is like has some of the best land on earth the culture, the place. I mean, everything about it just makes it ideal. And so to me, I think we're going to see more and more of that happen over the years because like what's going to happen when the EU breaks apart, right? When people can't pay back their debts. Like I'm not too sure that people want to have another sovereign debt crisis. So the story of Argentina is interesting to think about because whether it's, I have a friend at an emerging markets hedge fund right now in London and their job is going into the frontier markets and, you know, they basically own stock markets because they invest that much money in like Jordan and these places. And they kind of say that, you know, if they were to sell any of their assets right now, it would just destroy the economy because the stock market volume is so low. But eventually when people need to sell and the economy goes to like tanks, the government has no assets anymore uh, because revenue coming in is non-existent. People are broke. Then there is definitely a place for these Randian characters to kind of go in and buy everything up. I want to address some of the things that you think about. You have it on your personal homepage. And oh, I'll sure. find a, a couple of questions at once. One is, why has the U- U.S. GDP growth been linear for the last 150 years? And w- why has capital stopped flowing most re- more recently from rich countries to, to poor countries? And how do we develop the developed world? Yeah. So, I mean, each of those questions could take an hour in and of itself. So all of these aren't solved questions, obviously, but they're kind of useful to think about how people would go. I think that's really... These questions are kind of why I chose to study economics is that you really need to understand all these different disciplines to even tackle the surface of these questions, right? So when you think about US GDP growth being linear, we've had about two different golden ages in that period of growth, yet growth has been linear. So when we talk about tech and geopolitics, that's a question to kind of ask, which is that if the internet has been so massive, uh, this is uh, Robert Solo, the famous economist uh, question, which is that Computers are everywhere except in the productivity statistics. And because for the longest time, they were nowhere to be found. It's only in recent years that people have seen them actually impact productivity. But it's those things that underneath the surface, you're like, wow, computers are not enough to save a civilization. And you would imagine to the casual observer that this technological growth in bits would give us an exponential growth. But in reality, it's linear. So what can you do? And I think the thing that hasn't changed is actually governance. And we've tried everything else. We've tried you know, innovation in all these different areas, the thing that hasn't changed really is like, how do we think about like 
the laws that we have and what are we doing wrong? Is it with education? Is it with the way we choose our elected officials, right? Do we need to try it a monarchy? I mean, those are all things that people are thinking about now simply because it's like, you know, we've tried our best and it seems that we're just at a linear pace, which is not good enough, I think. Like, I think to solve a lot of these external issues is that we need to do a bit better than that. I think we can. I just think that the root causes behind these issues haven't been addressed kind of much as aging wasn't addressed for most of biology's existence. Is that the, did you answer the third, the last of developed, developed countries? Ah, right. So the Lucas paradox is the idea that money flows from rich countries to poor countries. But in recent years, in the recent decades, actually, that uh, money from poor countries has been going to rich countries. And you can kind of see that with China and the US. It's that generally, as Peter Thiel likes to say, 100 years ago in 1900, Barings Bank, which is one of the most famous banks in London at the time, would overinvest in Argentina because they knew that the yield would be amazing. However, now you find that America isn't investing so much in China as China is doing the opposite. Like any well-off person in China is trying to move their money out of the country and into America for dollars. And we should ask ourselves, why is that? Why are we not investing in these emerging markets? Like why hasn't America invested anything money-wise into Africa, much like China's Belt Road Initiative? And it's fundamentally because I think the Chinese technocrat is way more aware of the constraint on their labor supply than America is. Like, I never learned about demographics in school. I don't know if you did. But when you kind of learn about that, you're like, wow, that is really the most sci-fi problem over time. Like, it's, it's a great filter that was laying in disguise because less and less kids just destroys our current capitalistic system. And that changes how money moves and that changes everything that we know. And so... While on the surface, the Lucas paradox, the Lucas paradox might not be so interesting when you get into the deep parts of it. You're like, this is something deeper about power, about geopolitics that we haven't really discussed in our culture, but are still super important, right? Because where money moves often terms determines what people care about and what people invest in. And so when you think about the biggest levers in terms of how to develop the developed world, what might those be? Is Charter City one of, one of those or what, what might those be? Definitely. I think, yeah, Charter Cities is one, but... I think you can kind of phrase the question differently. So it's it's a developed world is something that when you call a country developed, you've almost already lost, right? Because you've lost the spirit that has made you great. So when you can think of that with like the conservative movement and America Day, like are we trying to conserve radical like idealism that took place during the revolution? Like what are we trying to conserve exactly? I think that's a very strong question for people. Is it just trying to act as like progress with speed bumps? You know, those are the questions that I think are interesting here. But so a developed, a developed world, certainly, you know, we know the phrase made during the Cold War with the USSR and a lot of countries that were just barely a subsistence level. However, now the developed world to me is one where like regulation basically encompasses most of what the government does. So in, in many of these other markets, government is actually a good thing. People don't realize that, Where whereby like they actually want to help entrepreneurs. They want to have more innovation. And to me, I kind of saw this. So I used to work at a nonprofit called Virtual Futures in England, which uh, you know was started by this crazy philosopher named Nick Land and pioneered this philosophy called accelerationism, which is effectively that you know uh, more tech progress sooner is better. And that idea got so lambasted in the school that actually 
everyone who started that nonprofit ended up depressed. The philosophers just like, you know, they, one of them actually committed suicide. Like it was just a terrible ordeal in general, but to have that kind of criticism when people make a statement. So to me, obvious, but to other people so hated, like, oh, we need more technology sooner, not later. And to get it that heated is something that I think defines a developed nation. Yeah. Is there more to accelerationism than that? Was it like, we need to get more technology such... I don't, when, when I hear about accelerationist, just used as a term, I sometimes hear about it in the context of like, you know, it needs to like go so... A movement needs to get so crazy such that it disintegrates or like, you know, um, falls. Is I'm not familiar with Nick Land's work, but was, was that part of it at all either? Or, or is just truly just more progress is better and thus let's have it sooner? Yeah, I think there are different ways that people could take it. I took it in the first being that like when we talk about you know, what's coming after capitalism, right? Post-capitalism. I think the only real method or solution that we have right now is like what's happening in the crypto space simply because like if we can't rely on a world with ever more people, like the government just taking on more debt because they know there's more people, then what do you do, right? And to me, that's really where the accelerationist movement come, came in because it, it was like linked hand in hand with Nick Sabo, um, everyone who was early in the crypto movement because what else did we have, right? I mean, if you didn't innovate your way out, it's it's almost like the interstellar problem. Like if you didn't get off Earth, you were already screwed. So in this case, getting out of Earth kind of meant like, you know, Vinay Gupta and I, so he was the guy who's now the founder of Materium, which is working with William Shatner and a bunch of other people to give every physical object a digital identity and track it across supply chains. At that time in 2017, when I was still at uh, Virtual Futures, we were speaking about this... Uh, like I said, the black elephant idea whereby like viruses, you know, I think we actually spoke about it at a dinner I hosted where he spoke and he said that all these issues that people think about casually in the back of their minds, most of them never happen, but the ones that do changes their lives actually forever, like the virus. And everyone knew that was coming. And for me, that's the case much like why acceleration accelerationism even started, which was like, oh, the internet is going to change everything. It didn't because it just centralized like the New York Times online, right? Now they're entering into film. It's, it's just it's just a monolith in a different form. But the only way to really break that up and get these independent forms of distribution of thought, of free speech, is, I think, mainly to decentralize it. And I know people have gone back and I think like Samuel Berger have talked about how it actually centralizes state power. I think at that level, what we mean by decentralize is two different things because I think it's very hard, if not impossible, to control a lot of what people do when, you know, our lives are lived in complete anonymity. And you can bring up the example of Bitcoin not being entirely anonymous, but we've just, again, scraped the surface. Does academia, research institutions, have to have a certain, at least some politics? Or how do we think about ideology and politics in these institutions and how do we get them out? That's a great question. One of the things I'm working on with my friend Dryden, actually, is kind of re- so Dryden is the founder of Blue Book Cities, and we're kind of thinking about, as Eric Weinstein said, a lot of these academics don't actually enjoy where they are because they can't do the research that they dreamt of doing as a kid, and it's become mostly politics and writing grants. So in effect, the university is your dream competitor because they won't do anything. They don't care what you're doing until it's too late. So we were thinking about getting potentially a 10 of the most interesting physicists who are basically want something new, they want to try something fresh, and get them in a community whereby it's like Tuxedo Park, which was the famous research institution, Alfred Loomis, noted financier and physicist, uh, 
made in the 20th century and reconfigure that for the 21st century using updated models of the internet, of computer science, of medical innovation, and kind of just letting them, you know, tinker, I think. Because even more than it's time to build, I actually think it's time to tinker. What is the difference? Yeah, so build in a way is like, it has this idea where we are sure of what we even want. So to give you an example, the counter argument against P. Marcus piece was like Clubhouse, right? That's not an example of building anything. But to me, when I think about tinkering, it goes back to what I said about Anton Howe's statement of like innovating versus tinkering, right? Like obviously we need a zero to one innovation. I'm not decrying that. But the real step changes we're going to have this century, I think, are using a lot of what we know. And I think there's a lot of theoretical physics and mathematics that have not been applied yet. And that comes into fruition with tinkering. Yeah. Like, for example, elliptic curve cryptography and Bitcoin, right? I mean. Yeah. How do we lure more bright people from prestige professions like finance, law, and media into engineering? Ooh. So I'm not of the type where I'd say that we actually need our defining scarcity right now isn't our lack of programmers. It's our lack of vision. So when we think about moving these bright people, of course, we need more people tinkering and breaking stuff and trying new things. But when I think about engineering, I think about what we really need are actually more generalists. And why I kind of say that is, so obviously you need some technical knowledge. Like I think you can't just go into a lot of these fields like aerospace or biotech and not like science because, you know, you'll get like slapped probably the first few years of your life if you just think that way because it's for now necessary. But what's always happened in history is that, you know, we've achieved greater and greater levels of abstraction. So in the 80s, people would always talk about you know, what you need to do is learn to learn Mandarin and play golf. That was like the move. And now it's, i sorry, it was learn Japanese and play golf. Now it's learn Mandarin and learn to code. And so will that be the case in 20 years? I don't actually think so. I think as we saw with GPT-3, like it's creating React code by itself. So software before it eats the world, eats software first. Yeah. You, you, you've written a bit about the, the media and sort of the broader question of, you know, who watches the Watchman, or how do we create sure. better incentives or, or structures there? Uh, how do you think about that? That's a timely, timely question. Yeah, I think the media is often where the populace has really hit it out. So you can even think of this like in Russian Revolution times, you know, Tolstoy, a lot of these people, the best literary minds were often some of the key figures in the revolution, right? And the way I think about that is in this case, it's a shelling point for people at the two sides of the debate, which is one that people actually kind of want free speech. And the other case, which is that people have no idea what they want. We're going to give them to you, which is the New York Times, I think. And acting as a funnel for like what constitutes, you know, all the information that's fit to publish, as their tagline says. So one vision I had for the future of media, maybe I'm wrong here, is that I think of it almost as like Aaron Sorkin as a service. So I think the brightest writers are people who are not yet writers. And I think there are a lot of people who have it in them, but they can't afford to pay themselves simply because like it takes a lot of, perhaps as we see with many journalists and trust funds, a lot of parental help to be a journalist to say the least. And I think what Substack is doing in the case of like giving people fellowships is something that's going to be copied across the board, angel investing in these writers, but then taking them to the full extent. So we see that with sports, you get recruited very early and they train you and you have a contract to stick with them for what, seven to eight years, right? Like that you give them the 
the the prime years of your life. And that's kind of happening in the case of writing again, which is that, oh, we're going to find this 15-year-old. They seem to know a lot about like BCI, brain-computer interfaces. We're going to give them some money to get started. It blows the top off of whatever they were expecting, increases, you know, increasing their revenue hundreds of percent, way more than they were ever expecting. But then the last step is then getting it out there and, you know, making a movie out of it. Uh, if they even want to do a print book at that time. And so they control the entire system of their speech from front to end that doesn't get misaligned by movie producers changing in the script. It doesn't get edited by editors at the New York Times or whatever. I think people having control of their own voice is something that hasn't happened in history yet. Because at some every stage of the process, someone could have always tampered with it, right? And so one of my view- futures is, I think this is even true for social media networks. Like Gary Vaynerchuk had a line a, f- a few weeks ago, which is that I could have made my entire brand by being anonymous. And I think about that a lot. Like I'm probably, probably for you too. I mean, when you interview people, are either of our names actually important? I don't know. I mean, yeah. like, I think we can do a lot of great work without people knowing that it's Eric Tornberg, Arnold Pye. Like maybe what is an actually important is substance and not prestige. Oh. In, in your podcast with um, Mike Gibson, uh, I, I didn't get to listen to it yet, but I'm reading the review. And he talks about the, the, the counter-enlightenment. Is what he means by that sort of the threatening of free speech and of certain liberal principles? Or what does he mean by that? Yeah, I think the counter-enlightenment gets taken out of context a lot. What it effectively is, is so Michael's tweet was the quadrant of counter-enlightenment, but pro-tech and pro-progress is very underrated. And what he means by that, because to a lot of people that, just screams like illiberal and gulch gulch and libertarian. And he definitely does tend libertarian, but that doesn't make what he's saying false, which is that in any modality of invention, you need faith. And there's a reason why so many scientists are men of, and women of faith. And it's because that, like to do example, for example, what Andrew Wiles did with solving for Maslow's theorem, he went away toward the end for about six years in a small little room and solved that by himself effectively. So I think that simply because of the way society is. I mean, everyone knows about memetic theory already that the only way to kind of escape all of that is to never really get involved in it in the first place. And the counter-alignment basically kind of says that, you know, when we only care about being rational, that's a mistake because rational people do what is written down in textbooks and they do what the norm says. But again, like as many inventors would kind of say that like, they're all charting uncharted waters. They're all going into uncharted waters. So how does that affect what they're doing? Well, like if you want to catch Moby Dick, you need to have some faith you're going to do that, right? Yeah. And I think that's lacking just in our establishment right now. Like it's very hard to create faith in somebody when they never had it because they've assumed that every part of their life has been planned out by you know men, be, men or women behind the curtain. Yeah. I'm curious in your case though, did you have that growing up? Like do you, did you think that you were really faithful towards something or like, you know, were you religious growing up? I was not religious, but I always, I was very inspired by the idea of human agency and that, and I think growing up, it was proving people wrong. <laughs> like uh, that, that, that I could pick a huge goal and achieve it. And first it had to do with, you know, basketball and, and then in, you know, sort of other interests I've, I've always been inspired by the capacity for human agency and I don't know where that faith comes from. But yeah. That, that's something I, you can't teach, right? Yeah. I don't think you can teach that either. I'd say I always, I always describe myself as 
pessimistically optimistic because fundamentally I'm optimistic, but you don't, you know, it's all, like Mark Twain said, it's not what you don't know that gets you. It's what you know that just ain't so. Yeah. <laughs> and that happens all the time. Like we have, I think as people like to say, these expectations we place around other people doing things, but I've never been so happy as when I kind of realized like the buck stopped with me. Yeah. I'm sure you realize that too. Probably. I think that's the case for any high agency person I met. Like totally. they kind of realize I can't give this person my responsibility. I just need to go out and do it, which I think is when we look for people and starting this charter city stuff, that's like really the only thing you can tell about somebody like yeah. how crazy are they to go out and do this? Cause why would anyone leave New York? Right. Why would anyone leave San Francisco? Yeah. No one in there, no one rational would do it. Only people with faith would. Totally. And, and so nearing towards closing here, I'll ask a, a couple questions. You can answer them separately or feel free to combine them. One is, is, is can we make another religious city, you know, does Silicon Valley, you know, in some ways embody the paradigm of great cities before it, like Jerusalem, Constantinople, et cetera. And the other is you, you had this piece in Athwart. I don't know how to pronounce it. Golden age and Paulus. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you could sort of unpack what, what you were trying to achieve in, in that piece. Yeah. So I originally thought of Silicon Valley embodying these other religious cities because when growing up in the Bay Area, I thought this place, place had a lot of faith. But then what I quickly realized was that reading a lot more history, this is kind of what you realize when, for example, in uh, Detroit in the 1900s, <clears throat> in the era of Ford and all these other iconoclasts, when they were making cars, people didn't laugh at them because they thought what they were doing was too ludicrous. They actually thought that it would change their lives forever, and it did. Same with Orville and Wilbur Wright with Kitty Hawk. People didn't laugh at them when they failed because they knew that when they did succeed, it would change everything forever. And now we kind of laugh at technology because, and the Valley, therefore, because it's like, why do we need Uber for dogs? So what I once thought was religious was actually this paganistic form of belief where like, you know, all that is holy is profane and uh, let's do everything because nothing matters. And, you know, to me, it was kind of crazy that like people wouldn't imagine just the amount of like drug culture that happened in the Valley. Right. And people don't do that stuff. I think when they're generally happy, I mean, you can, and obviously there's exceptions to everything, but like the point to which they needed to forget what they were doing at work, I think people would never imagine that. And in religious cities, like those of Jerusalem or whatever, there's almost a giddy feeling about just being there because like I was in St. Petersburg and you see that like people don't need any substance to be happy. It, like and it's just this infectious ideal that this zeal, right? That's why they call it a religious zeal because you don't need any other stimulant. Like there are people dancing in the streets, like singing, you know, still like reading books in the park and what have you. That is obviously happens everywhere, but like the energy I'm saying of that underpins all of that is something that maybe I wasn't involved in it at the time, but I haven't really seen it in the Valley in recent years. I don't know. What do you think? Or can you rephrase it a little bit? What, what oh, yeah. Do you think, do you still think you feel that magnetic energy in the Bay Area that, you know, has been, like, it definitely was there, I'd say, like, circa 2013, 2014. But then in more recent years, after 2016 especially, it became a lot more like, you know, how dare you, like, critical theory or whatever. Yeah. Tanner, I forget, is, is Tanner Green? What's <clears throat> Tanner Greer, yeah. Yeah, I agree. He has this great blog post where, uh, about on, on time to build, and he says, the, the fundamental question of society is not something like, not w- what can I build, but how, how do I get management to take my side? And um, <laughs> I, I, I see that a lot. Sure. The, um, the other thing I'd say about it is just 
I mean, I haven't seen people in so long. <laughs> so when we talk about place, like, yeah, like, I mean, I'm in Arizona right now. I've been communicating basically all of 2020 on the internet, even when I was in San Francisco wow. or coronavirus. <laughs> um, and so, but, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think the Tanner. Quote. I mean, you said it yourself, right? The fact that like we now just have the shared ontology that is the Valley and we don't actually need yeah. to be anywhere near there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a mindset. Like that says it all right before it was like, Oh, I'm, I think it was Antonio Garcia Martinez's book, Chaos Monkeys, amazing, like one of the best books I've read in my life, where he kind of describes like that competition that you'd have when you see your friend at YC coming through yeah. the door for another VC meeting. And now it's like, there's none of that. Like, it seems that we've just taken this like aversion to competition of growth. And yeah. maybe that's also a function of, I mean, you can still have those goals for yourself while doing it the right way and not being terrible to people. Although maybe we're in that phase right now where people are like, you know, if I can't do that, why do I need to be in the Bay Area? Like I can do that anywhere, right? Yep, totally. This has been a fantastic episode. For, for people who want to go deeper, highly recommend subscribing to newsletter, Dreams of Electric Sheep, and uh, checking out the podcast, uh, Conservative uh, Curious. Thank you so much oh, for coming great. on the podcast today. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.